In just a moment, I'm going to be reading a scripture from the book of James, the first chapter and into the second chapter. And uh, uh, just to to remind you, because of our Sunday interruption, that we, uh, for each of our setting sail uh, emphases, uh, for each of the sails, there's been a sermon series, and we are currently in the fourth of five sermon series over over the period of months, thinking about church without walls, thinking about community transformation and what God's Word says about that to the church and to the community and to the world. And I'm going to be reading from James chapter 1 beginning in verse 22 in just a moment, but I invite us to a moment of prayer. I invite you to bow please and be in God's presence in a time of silence, forming your own prayer, uh, your own confession, your own thanksgiving, your own petition, or just a time of silence to soak up holy presence. And then I'll lead us in family prayer time. Our loving God, we know that life is fragile and in an instant, uh, lives can be turned upside down. So we pray today your very special ministry within our congregation and community for those who are hurting. We pray that you would move off the pages of Scripture, move out of our uh, hymn books and our uh, praises and choruses, And Lord, move off of our game plans when we think we're in charge and come and be real in these life situations. Uh, Come uh, to the cancer and the, the illness and the grief and the loneliness and come to the broken homes, come to the racial tensions and the community needs. Come, Holy Father, to those in prison, to those who've lost hope, to those without Christ who don't know about your everlasting love. And we pray that you would today come into our hearts powerfully and personally, that your spirit might speak to us in a way that would change us and ways that would make a difference for us individually and as a church. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James chapter 1, verse 22, reading through uh, into chapter 2 through verse 7. So James 1, 22 and following. And if you're able, would you stand, please, as I share God's word. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers... They are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in. And if you take notice of the one 
wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, dressing uh, first thing in the morning, uh, preparing for a funeral. And uh, as I was tying my necktie in front of the mirror, I noticed some flecks of blood on my collar of my white shirt. It had evidently uh, touched up against uh, my neck, and I nicked myself shaving. And having seen that in the mirror, I immediately changed shirts into a fresh shirt, finished dressing, went on with my day. I have just described for you what James describes as the way that we worship and live our lives authentically before God in worship and service. He says that to experience God's word is like looking into a mirror and seeing how we really are and then changing. He says it doesn't do any good just to look in the mirror and walk away. It doesn't do any good just to hear and not do, not act. He says there's this, there's this symphony, this, this togetherness between hearing and doing, between seeing in the mirror and making the changes that are needed. So the question before us is, will First Baptist Church as a congregation and as individuals have the courage to look into the mirror of God's Word and see who we are and what we need to be, especially as it comes to the business of God's call for community transformation, for us to be in this community a church without walls. Now, James very clearly defines pure religion, the way our faith devotion should look in terms of worship and action. He says in 127, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think it's very, very informative that he chooses to call God our Father as he begins to describe how the church of his day and our day should be in the world and in the community. God is our Father. That means we have been born of the Father into the spiritual family. Uh, I want us to get rid of this notion that when we talk about community service, when we talk about the church without walls transforming this community, we are not talking about works salvation. We are not talking about works righteousness, earning points with God. We are declaring that what we do, we do because God is our Father and we are His children. Because we have been born again spiritually. Because His life is in us. And we want to replicate his life through ours and we want to be the living Christ in the community. So it's not work salvation. It is a response to the work that God 
has done in our hearts. But there's another dimension to this word father. If God is our father, as James says, then that means we have brothers and sisters. And I don't know about you, but I didn't get to vote on whether I had brothers or sisters. They just were. And we don't get to vote on brothers and sisters. They just are. And God has called us to responsibility. And so James says, this is pure religion. To acknowledge God's fatherhood in such a way that we care for all of God's children and we love them. Widows, orphans, any who are vulnerable, any who've been locked out, any who've been cast aside, any who have been disfavored by culture's judgment. Martin Luther King Jr. had this beautiful line, we are not fully alive until we're lifted from individual concerns to the good of all. Because it's so easy for us to focus on what's good for me, what's good for my family, what's good for my world. But Martin Luther King Jr. said that we don't really come alive spiritually. And I think that's what James was saying. We don't come alive spiritually. It's not genuine religion until we're concerned for the good of all, the orphans, the widows, all who've been marginalized and pushed to the edges. And then James adds a phrase. He says, you know, it's also keeping yourself unstained from the world, from the world who has upside-down values, a world that taints us Uh, with judging people based on social status. To keep ourselves unstained from a world that would favor rich over poor. To keep ourselves unstained from the world that would make judgments based on a person's skin color or ethnicity or accent or clothing or zip code. To, To not adopt the world's values and to make his point, James beginning in the second chapter, gives this probably real-life illustration. He says, suppose you're in your assembly as believers, and uh, a person uh, with lots of bling walks in. I mean, jangling bracelets and necklaces and shiny rings and fancy clothing, and you fall all over yourself to say, oh, sit here in the place of honor. So good to have you. And then he says, a person who doesn't smell so good comes in, dressed in shabby clothes, not socially adept. And we give all the cues we can verbally and non-verbally to let that person know, you can sit wherever you want. Back there is probably better. And James uses this illustration to to remind the church that we're not like the world. We don't make those kinds of distinctions. William O. Douglas was a Supreme Court justice in the United States Supreme Court for many years. He was an avid outdoorsman. He loved to hike. He loved the, uh, uh, the wilderness of the northwestern United States where he was from. And one time when he was on summer break, he'd He was out hiking somewhere in the mountains and uh, something happened. He became in need of some minor medical attention. And he walked into a local clinic and they didn't know him. And he was sweaty. He was dirty. 
He was dressed in shabby clothes. And it was almost closing time, and some of the people in the clinic at first ignored him. And then they, some of them treated him with irritation because it was almost time to go home. And this intruder had come in. They treated him that way until they knew he was somebody. But they forgot that everybody is somebody, right? In the eyes of God, everybody is somebody. Doesn't matter how you dress, doesn't matter what you look like. Everybody counts. Created in God's image. And how can the church of Jesus Christ forget that? In verse 4, James says, Is it possible that we've started making distinctions and have become judges of other people? And, and that's what happens. We, we judge first impressions, judgment. And we size someone up almost immediately and put that person in a category. James says, that's not God's way. You know, historians tell us that the early church was unique in its culture, in the way that it treated the poor. That like Jesus, the early church was loving and compassionate, did not judge external appearances. And then these episodes started percolating where the church started becoming conscious of social distinctions. And James says, how can you forfeit the one thing that makes the church of Jesus unique in our world? How can you forfeit the one thing that is our unique witness to the love of Jesus Christ by, by acting like the world instead of acting like Jesus toward the poor? Historians also tell us that in some instances, something very radical socially happened. That slaves and masters would be converted to Jesus Christ, and when they came into the church, they would treat one another as equals. Because they knew that no matter what their standing was out there during the week, that in the church and in Jesus Christ, they were equals. That in Jesus Christ, there, there is no social or economic or racial distinctions. Powerful images. But there's even something more disturbing and thought-provoking in James's teaching, and that's in verse 5. When he says, he asks the question, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, church, we need the poor. We need the disadvantaged. We need the powerless and the weak and the people cast aside because they will forever and always teach us truth about the gospel of Jesus that we will never learn any other way. We need the poor and broken among us because they teach us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was onto this 90 years ago. 90 years ago, he wrote his doctoral dissertation that became a book, Sanctorum Communio. And in that book, he talked about the church being in the community and in the world. 
And he made this observation. I remind you, 90 years ago, he made this observation that the church of the developed world, the industrialized world, the church of the developed industrialized world is made up mostly of middle class people. While the church of the developing world, what we used to call the third world, is made up mostly of poor people. Bonhoeffer then asked the question, which church is thriving and flourishing? Which region of the world is it that the church is alive with vitality? And the answer is in the poor, in the developing world. And it was true 90 years ago and it's still true today. The church is vibrant in Africa and South America and other and other regions that aren't developed industrially. We need the poor. We need the people in this community who can teach us so much about the love of Jesus Christ. William Blake uh, penned this poem a long time ago, part of a poem, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I sought my neighbor, And I found all three. When we find our neighbors, First Baptist family, we will find God and we will find our own souls. That may be why James has said God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom of those who love him. The 46th Psalm is a, a psalm that I read a lot in my private devotions. It's a psalm that I use a lot at funerals. It's that psalm that begins, God is our uh, present help in time of trouble. God is our fortress. Uh, the uh, great hymn by Martin Luther, a Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, is built on that beautiful 46th Psalm and And uh, I've preached sermons on this. In fact, I preached from the 46th Psalm the Sunday after 9-11 because God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. And you know, all the times I've preached from that, meditated on that psalm, sung that psalm, thought about that psalm, only recently did I discover a little phrase right in the middle of the 46th Psalm. Are you ready for this? God is in the midst of the city. God is in the midst of the city. The psalmist didn't say, God will be in the midst of the city if we go do something. God is already there. How arrogant of us to think that God is not in the community unless we go and take God there. God's already there in the school district, uh, in the works for justice, in the legislature and in city council, in all of the many places of brokenness and pain and, and struggle. God is in the city. We don't take God to the city. We go into the community 
and we join God in what God is already doing. A church without walls humbly acknowledges that God is already there. We go join Him. God is not bottled up in this building. (laughs) We are. We're the ones stuck in this building. God isn't limited by these walls. He's out there. And we read a portion of the uh, beautiful Matthew 25 scripture earlier, and I want to show you once again that Matthew 25, just a portion of it. Jesus teaches that beautiful lesson, for I was hungry, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you visited me, cared for me. Jesus is in the face of every struggling, hurting person in this community. And we will be doing it with Jesus and for Jesus when we do that. Whatever that ministry might be as as we are the church without walls. Jim Wallace uh, loves to tell the story about a lady named Mary who worked in the soup kitchen uh, of... uh, Uh, some kind of food line in Washington, D.C., and she would pray of a morning before she started working, Jesus, I know you're going to be coming through the line today. Lord, I know you're going to be coming through the food line. Jesus, when you come, help us to recognize you. And Jesus, when you come through that line, help us to treat you well. Help us to treat you well. And that's what God's calling this church family to be and to do. To be able to recognize Jesus in the faces and lives of this entire community. And to treat him well. To treat him well.